Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Better at Work. On this episode, I am super excited to be joined by Molly West Duffy. Now, Molly and her co-author, Liz, believe we should acknowledge our feelings. Can you believe that? Acknowledge our feelings in the workplace and in life and not suppress them. There is sometimes data in those emotions that if we act on can help improve our work life and life. So, Molly, welcome to Better at Work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. We're so delighted to have you. Now, Molly, where did it all start for you? Why did you become so interested in emotions in, in work and in life? Liz and I both were in our 20s going to work and we felt like we needed to be professional. And what we thought that meant was that there's no room for emotions at work, that we had to be cool, calm, collected. And as we progressed over the course of, of that decade of our 20s, we realized that we still were human. We were still having emotions at work and we had no idea what to do with them. Like, when do we express them? When do we not express them? You know, when are they helpful to listen to when making a decision? When are they not helpful to listen to? And so it was sort of like a, a research activity for ourselves. We were like, let's answer this question so we can be better at work and figuring out when when to express them and when not to. I heard you say before as well, you were quite open about the fact that, you know, you've had challenges at work yourself where it got tough and that that really was something that you thought about as well as go, OK, what what's this telling me? I love that you were so honest about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I dealt with a lot of figuring out of my own emotions, whether that was anger or sadness about something that was happening at work, dealing with uncertainty. And I think those were emotions that I, again, I didn't know how to process at work. And I felt like, you know, we have therapists in our personal lives. Sometimes we talk about work to our, our therapists, but there wasn't room to talk about it. Like I didn't know who to go to. Like, do I go to my boss about it or do I talk to my colleagues about it? And I'm somebody who who tends to be what we call an under-emoter as well. So it's hard for people to read my emotions, whereas other people, it's really obvious, like your, emotion, your emotions are just like out there on your sleeves. And so people can maybe help you calm down. But for me, I had to get better at recognizing my own emotions, naming them for other people because they weren't necessarily aware that I was experiencing those and then get better about like talking them through. That's so interesting because I that's where I feel maybe I'm very different. People always used to say in the workplace, you know, oh, my God, you look a little stressed today. You look a little bit annoyed <laughs> today. And I used to try and hide them. I'm like, going, oh, they're noticing these emotions. I've got to be yeah. careful. Now, I love both your books. I mean, I've just finished reading your latest you. book, which I can't wait to talk about as well. And your first book, which in case our listeners don't know about, Molly wrote it with Liz Foslin. Do I pronounce her name correctly? Foslin? It's Fosleen, Fosleen. like leaning against a wall. The book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. Now, it's so good. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have seen the amazing illustrations that I know Liz does um, as, as well as you co-writing the book. One of the things that I love in the book is that it opens with a simple argument. The future of work is emotional. Why so, Molly? Why is the future of work emotional? Our jobs, for, for the most part, have become much more interdependent and collaborative. And we're working with people across cultures. We're now working in hybrid and, and remote work. And so those are more challenging situations where we're going to have more emotions at work. And it's going to be even more important for us to share those emotions. And that makes it more difficult to navigate, definitely. But I think we all have emotional needs and, and most of us vastly underestimate the size and the scope of those emotional needs. And that eventually hurts our team members because, again, we still have those emotional needs. But when we don't share them, 
things can build up over time and come out in the form of yelling or crying or, or other ways. I think the other thing is that what we want from our leaders has shifted over time. So we, we saw this in the U.S. actually with, with Hillary Clinton, who ran in 2016 for president. And she had been raised in an all-male environment. She came up through politics in the 80s and 90s, and she really didn't share any of her emotions because that wasn't appropriate for her to. And then in the last, I would say, decade, decade and a half, what we want from our leaders has shifted. So we don't want the traditional stoic leader who doesn't show any emotion. We want to see that our leaders are human. And she wasn't able to make that transition. And so people often described her as cold. They were like, you know, is she even a human? Is she a robot? And so leaders do need to realize that they need to show their emotions a little bit more at work and that the workplace has become more emotional. It's so interesting you say that with Hillary Clinton. And in one of my roles, we had a boss and she was a lovely lady, but she was a little bit robotic. And uh, people used to go, I think she's gone home to just charge herself for the evening, you know, like a phone, (laughs) which was terrible. It was terrible that people would say that. But it was interesting because people really couldn't sometimes get behind her strategy, etc. Because they just were like, I don't know her. Like I, I just, she's, she's just someone behind a load of emails all day long. So it's very interesting you make that reference to Hillary Clinton because I, I didn't, I, I didn't make that kind of connection previously. But wow, yeah, I think leaders have to show something. And, and I know one of the questions I have is you do talk about showing some vulnerability, and it's a kind of a fine line which I, I am really, I think our listeners are going to love. Now, I know one of your favorite chapters in the book is where you talk about relevant versus irrelevant emotions. I was probably one of the most insightful ones for me because I thought, oh, I would be at work going, okay, which one is it? Now, I think it'd be a great little starter for our listeners, especially the examples around the emotions of envy and regret. Could you tell us a little bit more about why the hell do you love that chapter so much? Relevant versus irrelevant emotions. Yes. So this is on our chapter on decision making. And one of the things that, again, when we found this out, when we were doing research, we were like, oh, this is so helpful. Why did no one teach us this yet? And it's the idea of is the emotion that you're feeling relevant or not relevant to the decision at hand? So I might be really hungry and that turns into frustration and anger. We've all heard, you know, being hangry during the day. I skipped lunch and I might be then having to make a decision in the afternoon. And so I might say, okay, I'm feeling really frustrated and tired right now, but that has nothing to do with the decision at hand. I shouldn't use that as a signal. And then relevant emotions are directly tied to the choice that you're facing. So if you're trying to decide, you know, if you're going to ask for a promotion, And the idea of not asking for the promotion fills you with regret, then that is a relevant emotion. So asking yourself, just pausing and saying, okay, I'm feeling a really strong emotion right now. Is that relevant or not relevant? I love that. It was so great. I mean, I read that. I think the book came out in 2019. Was that right? I mean, I read that a good few years ago and it was, it was so insightful. And it's interesting because I told her there was a study, I think, about judges making certain decisions later in the day if they've been hungry or hangry. So you just reminded me of that there, that the decisions were likely to go um, less in favor of the criminal, right? So, but if those decisions that were made earlier in the day where they were less hungry, they were more likely to get a better outcome. So interesting that you say that. But yeah, I love that. And I think that is so relevant for people because you can get caught up in your own head of going, oh, it's a really bad day today. And and then bring that into everything that you're about to do. Yes, exactly. And there's a lot of research studies around that. You know, same thing is true for for doctors, what, you know, day of the week and how stressed they are affects operation success. It affects investment decisions in terms of when they make those investment decisions. We think that we are rational creatures and we're just like, I, I know my emotions and I'm putting them to the side and I'm making a really rational decision. And that's what we really learned in that chapter was like, our emotions are always going to be affecting our decisions. I mean, we could try to be more conscious of them, but they are there. And the question is whether or not we listen to them. It's great. It was so, it was such an eye opener, that chapter. And I think as well, it makes you sometimes think, look, you're not in this alone. We're all different, but in some ways, some of these fundamentals are the same for all of us. In the book, uh, No Hard Feelings, I love that it's broken into those seven aspects of work. And there's two or three that I really resonated with. But just for the listeners, the way that Molly and Liz break it down is into health, 
motivation, decision-making, teamwork, communication, culture, and leadership. Now, honestly, if you haven't read the book, get the book. We're not going to even touch on half the amazing things that are in the book. So these seven aspects of work, the one that uh, the ones that we're going to talk about are health, uh, teamwork, and leadership. Now, I loved this, Molly, in the book. We'll start with health. And one of the first things that surprised me was the message, let's be less passionate about work. Now, I was shocked on that because all you ever hear is be more passionate, get your passion, feel your mojo, all of this. Tell me, why did you start by saying let's be less passionate about work in relation to health? Well, one of the things about writing a book is that to get attention, you have to write things that that are, you know, sort of anti what we think about most of the time. So that was one of our new rules of emotion at work. And I think many of us do care a lot about our work, and that is good. We're not saying don't care or don't be passionate about your job, but we're saying be less passionate about your job and care more about yourself. So a lot of times when we think about burnout, it's that we're not taking care of ourselves and that's not healthy and that's not helpful. And when we care more about ourselves, we care less about small problems. You know, we're like, okay, I'm just going to let that go. We don't hyperventilate before a big presentation because we're like, you know, I want it to do well, but I'm not going to make myself stay up all night worrying about it. And so it can make us healthier and happier, but I think also can make us a better worker because we're more aware of the moments when we're going to get caught by anxiety and we're able to say, I'm going to take a step back from this. Yeah, I loved that because I've had a career in working at an investment bank and you could just work all the hours, God sends. And you do kind of get caught up in your identity being related to that company, etc. So I really liked that because I think it does take some of the pressure out of it. And it, it resonated with me. I, I remember someone telling me a year or two ago, I was saying, oh, I'm still very ambitious for my career. And the person said to me, you should be ambitious for your life, not your career, which I thought was oh, a very that. good way of summing it up. And it, now that's kind of like my mantra a lot. Be ambitious for your life, not your career. And when I saw that in your book as well, it kind of all something went on in my brain. I thought, oh, this is all starting to make sense. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, you know, many of us think that our identity is our, our work life and it can be a transition period to move out of that to say, okay, yes, my work is really important, but I need to spend less time there or develop side hobbies or find other ways to measure my identity. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, honestly, I know a lot of people who are wrapped up sometimes in it all and it just becomes so much. And, and, and that's where, you know, burnout, you know, you mentioned burnout there, but it's such an issue for so many people. Now, I know in your new book, as I said to everyone, I bloody love this new book. You said that during the pandemic in your, in the book, it says actually when you were doing workshops with companies, um, the questions from staff really changed. And that I really was interested in this. So you, in the book, it said that they changed from, uh, questions like, how do I have a good one on one with my manager to half my team were made redundant? I feel like I have survivor guilt and I have three people's work to do. I wake up exhausted. When I read that, I thought I have about 70 people that have said that to me in over the last year or two. But tell us a little bit more about this. I mean, burnout, such an issue linked to health and this question coming up during the pandemic. Yes. During the pandemic, we heard over and over in workshops. So we would ask people on a scale of one to 10, how close to burnout do you feel you are? And most people were in the seven to eight range, which is really not good. This is people who are in workshops with their colleagues and their managers. And they're like, yep, I'm going to just say this because everyone knows and everyone is experiencing this. Like, that's what changed is I think it used to be there were some people who were experiencing that, but maybe they didn't feel comfortable sharing it publicly. And they were like, this is something I got to work on alone. And during the pandemic, it was like, oh, no, we're all experiencing this. And so in a way, that's good that people feel open about sharing. I think that's, you know, a silver lining. But on the other hand, it's not like we've come up with a solution to it. We continue to do workshops where this happens. And I feel like we keep talking about burnout and we're all burned out about talking about burnout, but there aren't a lot of solutions around it. And, you know, we can go into this in the chapter, but I, I do think, and I just want to name here that I think burnout, one of the fundamental issues is capitalism. And that in some countries, not every country, we don't have as many social safety nets as we used to. And so it feels like I have to work a job or I have to work two jobs 
in order to save for my retirement, to save for a down payment on a house, like to do all the things that you want to do. It just feels like I can't stop. And then combine that with working from home, remote work, hybrid work, people leaving. It's a really difficult thing to know how to get out of. Molly, I feel like you and I have had conversations before, but we haven't. We've had one conversation before this, but this is very interesting because you've got me on a topic that I'm very passionate about. We were in San Francisco recently and there were so many homeless people. And I thought, wow, you just don't have that in Australia, right, where I currently live. And the exact conclusion we came to was that there is no safety net. There isn't as strong a safety net in the US as there are in some other countries. And it actually made me quite sad to see to go, well, that would absolutely lead to burnout because people are worried about things like paying their mortgage, et cetera. Not that they're not worried in other countries, but there's absolutely no safety net in the US. I could have a whole podcast on that because yeah. that's a, <laughs> it's a very, um, yeah, we, I've talked a lot about that with, with friends and colleagues. Yeah. And, and just to stay on it for a second here, because I, I really like this ability to sort of compare across countries for your audience. I think that in the U.S., this has been a it's like boiling the frog. This has been a slow change starting in probably the late 70s, early 80s. And it's like slowly over time, you know, we didn't have a lot of homeless population. And then over time, it's grown. And it's a really a failure of our institutions. Um, and there's a line that I write in the book about, you know, my, my father, uh, who's in his late 60s. And he reminds me that because I was born in the 80s, I cannot comprehend what it feels like to live in a society as an adult with a real safety net. And, you know, I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I would be a lot less stressed if my health insurance, my retirement plan, my ability to pay for our house, any future children's education, you know, didn't rely solely on my ability to right now work as many hours as I possibly can for the highest possible wage, because these are my income generating years. And it's like, oh, my God, deep breath. Like, yes. Well, you know, honestly, Molly, it's funny, you and I must like the same things because I was reading an article about Jack Welsh and GE yes, and yes. the article was basically saying that, you know, he's a bit of a, I shouldn't say this, but I mean, he's a bit of the cause of some of this because he was all about lean and people were almost became numbers in organizations. And it just, it, it kind of got rid of the kind of safety net, even of a corporate safety net or working at a corporate where you thought maybe you had a job for life, et cetera. So I could talk about this all day. So, but I think it look back to the point here, burnout is super tough for people. And, and you, we kind of took it up another level there that, you know, it's the pressure that people have to put their kids through school, all of that. I did notice in, in the latest book, Big Feelings, you said that in regards to burnout, and I love this because I love, I'm a framework person, all my teams that have worked with me over the years, any strategy day, anything to do with performance improvement, I have to have a framework. And I love that you have frameworks as well. Now, you said with burnout, three things, figure out whether you are overextended, disengaged or feeling ineffective. Tell us a little bit about those three, right? Figure out if you're overextended, disengaged or feeling ineffective. This comes from Christina Maslach, who's a researcher who in the um, 70s actually came up with this. It's called the Maslach Burnout Inventory, and it was used actually to look in a, at a healthcare setting. And she defines three dimensions of burnout. So as you said, overextended, you feel exhausted, you're constantly depleted. That's the one that we think about most frequently when we use the word burnout. We usually mean I'm feeling exhausted. There are two other pieces of it. So cynicism, feeling detached from your job and the people around you. This was a big issue during the pandemic because we weren't physically seeing each other. So it's very easy to feel like alone in your home. And then the third is feeling ineffective. So even as hard as you work, you feel that you're never able to do a good job. You might actually be doing a good enough job, but you don't feel that you are being effective. And so if you are feeling all three of those things clinically, that is burnout. Now, I think that if you are feeling a ton of exhaustion and being overextended, we could still allow you to say that you're feeling burned out. But 
That being said, I think we, we talk a lot about emotional granularity, which is using really specific words to define what you're feeling. So instead of just saying stressed, you might say, I'm having anxiety about an upcoming deadline. So the same thing is true here. If you can say, I'm feeling constantly depleted and exhausted, that's much more specific than saying I'm burned out or you know, saying, okay, I, I actually am realizing that I'm feeling really detached and that's a piece of the burnout can be helpful. And we have an assessment on our website that you can go and, and figure this out on if it's most people are like, oh, I know. But <laughs> if you want to go take, yeah. Take the assessment. I uh, Yeah, I actually really would recommend people going and taking the assessment and actually, you know, just on that, speaking of the website, there is so much other good free stuff on there. I love that you guys give away so much free stuff on there. It's great. So guys, definitely check it out. But just to finish off that burnout discussion as well, I one thing that I was very interested in the new book, it talked about garbage time, which I thought, wow, this is a whole new one. And and look, it's, it's not a, it's not, a, not meant to be funny, but obviously when people have all three of those and, you know, or as you said, one of them, but they're feeling really burnt out, garbage time. What I loved about it was Brené Brown seemed to be a fan of garbage time. And for, for the listeners, she basically watched 46 episodes of Law and Order when her hubby took the kids away for the weekend so she could write a chapter of the book. And I thought, Jesus, Lord, if Brené Brown is like, you know, doing, binge watching TV because she's burnt out. I don't feel so bad, but um, garbage time, Molly, tell us a little bit about it. Yes, I love that too. It really gives us all permission. <laughs> so when you are actually feeling burned out, one of the most important things that you can do is make time in your day or your week to have downtime. And for many people that looks different, and the reason we like calling it garbage time is it does give that permission of like, yeah, your downtime shouldn't be cleaning the house. Like that's not <laughs> garbage time. Um, garbage time is truly like for me, it's reading celebrity news. Um, for you know, Liz, it's it's going on TikTok and Twitter and you know, scrolling. And oftentimes we think that these are not productive things, and so we don't make time for them throughout the day or the week. And then we realize, you know, oh, I had no time for just resting my brain for, you know, it's not even processing time, it's really just like zoning out veg time. And and that's not healthy. We cannot be on, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And so the story that Brene Brown shares is, you know, she she watched 46 episodes of Law and & Order and her husband came back and he was like, OK, well, that's not why I took the kids away. Like, what were you doing? But then three days later, this is on a weekend, three days later on Thursday, she finished her chapter draft. It just flowed out of her. And so the point is we have to make time for what restores us and we shouldn't judge what that is. Like a big part of this is letting go of, of the shoulds. You don't need to have high expectations for your downtime. Oh, listen, it's funny. On another episode I did with Caroline Webb, we talked a lot about um, our silly little side habits of things that we do for downtime. I love watching crappy reality TV, which is awful, but I... I kind of, you know, sometimes you just need a little bit of crap to, to relax. And, and so she said similar and, you know, she, she has this concept of when then. So when I get this piece of work done, then I will reward myself with a piece of reality TV. Mm. <laughs> so it's a kind of another brain trick. Now, uh, Molly, the other one that I love, which is you, you talked about this and it's also in the book because I love the image in the book of it. Um, no one else is going to draw your lines. Now, this is another one that just was a jackpot for me. Would you mind sharing with the listeners? Someone told you this saying, Molly, no one's going to draw your lines. I, I think that would be so powerful to share. Yeah, this was in my late 20s. And one of my colleagues, um, I was having trouble turning down projects and just managing my own workload. And she said to me, Molly, no one else is going to draw your lines for you. And it's one of these really difficult things about being an adult. We wish that we had a parent or a spouse or a boss who would say, hey, you're really stressed right now. Like, you should take a day off this week. And unfortunately, no one's paying that much attention. You're the only one who's paying that much attention. And so being really clear. And, and you know, I think a marker of success in our society is being busy. And those people who you wish would call this out might be just as busy as you are. And they may not know what your boundaries are. So asking yourself if, you know, if I say yes to this, what do I gain? But also like, what am I not going to be able to do instead? I don't have a f expanding capacity. I have a limited capacity. 
Liz, my co-author, often uses rules, which can be easier to say no. So on on sort of personal life things, she says, I'm not going to do anything social or extracurricular activities three work nights a week. And I've seen this. So I've been up with her in San Francisco and I'll say, you know, hey, do you want to go out to dinner with some friends? And she'll say, no, it's Monday. I don't do things on Monday night. And then it's not personal and I don't feel bad. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's your rule. And she has a full weekend day where she doesn't plan anything. So that can be helpful. But I think for me, what this means is really taking a a better look at my own calendar. So our lives are defined by our calendars. And when we do the thing where we look ahead and we say, okay, yes, I have back-to-back meetings on Wednesday, but that's Wednesday. I'll deal with that on Wednesday. (laughs) Then we get to Wednesday and we say, oh my God, this was a terrible day. and And I'm inching closer towards burnout. And so what my rules and my boundaries for myself are, I cannot do back-to-back meetings for more than like a day at a time. And so I have to move meetings and I will say, hey, you know, I'm sorry, things came up. I need to move this to next week or I'm going to listen to the recording of this meeting or whatever it is. And I used to feel bad about that, but I don't feel bad anymore because that is the key for me not burning out. And this is the thing, which is like people are really worried about like, well, what if my boss isn't going to let me move a meeting? And I'm like, you know, what's really not helpful to your boss you being burned out and having to take extended time off or you quitting. So you have to do what is right for you. And honestly, people will be happy that you move the meeting. They'll be like, great, next week works better for me. And we can be really good about this one month. And then the next month we fall apart again. And so this is the thing about burnout. It is a constant process that we have to be on top of. It's like flossing or getting your car's oil changed. Like it's not a one and done situation. So, you know, really saying, how can I take better care of myself? Yeah, I I love all that. And what a great tip there for our listeners, just in terms of really looking at that calendar, understanding yourself and what gets you stressed because the calendar does get a lot of people stressed. Now, I know I spent a little bit longer on burnout there, but it was just really important because I think it's such a topical thing right now. Now, in the teamwork part, you talk about psychological safety, which I really am such a, uh, I really am a big fan of. Would you mind just briefly explaining to people what psychological safety is and why is it so important for teams? Yes. Yeah. So psychological safety is a concept that has become very popular in the last decade or so. And it is something that I think we hear about, but we don't always know what exactly it means. And, and it was the word wasn't coined by, but it but very much has been defined by Amy Edmondson, who is a professor at Harvard Business School. And what this looks at is whether or not you feel that you can take a risk, make a mistake without feeling that the rest of your team is going to look down on you. And this is really important, but it's also something that the teams can change. And there was a good study at Google that looked at success on teams and the teams that had the highest level of psychological safety were less likely to leave their jobs. They brought in more revenue. They were rated more effectively. So again, it's it's the ability to suggest ideas, admit mistakes, take risks without being embarrassed by the group. Yeah, I think it's such a critical thing so that they're not going to be judged for something they say. I loved psychological safety and what you had in the chapter on that. Now, leadership is another area we need to use emotions effectively. I have managed lots of people over the years. I'm not saying I've done it well. I've definitely tried my best. Leaders need to help other people manage and express their emotions. And that's what I loved in your book. Now, what do you see as some of the key do's and don'ts for leaders in this particular role that they have? One of the things that leaders need to do is figure themselves out in terms of what we talked about earlier in the podcast of are you an over emoter and under or are you somewhere in the middle and an even emoter? So when you become a leader, people look at you longer and harder than they look at their colleagues. It's just a fact. Everyone is examining you and what emotions you're having or not having. 
And so you need to be more aware of, as you said, like maybe people are reading your facial expressions and you're like, oh, I didn't realize that they know how I'm feeling right now. And then for people like me, people are like, well, is she, you know, even a human? She's not showing any emotion. Like what's going on? So we talk about this as being selectively vulnerable. And what this means is walking the line between oversharing, which destroys trust, and undersharing, which also destroys trust. So getting that right balance. And this is going to look different for every person. So if you're an over-emoter, you're going to have to dial that back a little bit so you're not oversharing all the time. And if you're an under-emoter, you're going to have to say, oh, like I need to share my emotions more frequently. And this is this takes practice. And one of the best things that you can do is find a role model. And we do this in workshops and we say, who's somebody who you think does a great job of sharing some of their emotions, but not oversharing? You know, so a great example is if a leader has to give news about a layoff. What we don't want to hear from them is something like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm really scared. <laughs> That's maybe how they're feeling, but we don't want to hear that those are the emotions. We would immediately lose trust. On the other hand, if they were to share the news with the company and just say, you know, this is a decision. It happened. We're moving on. People would be like, well, we're really upset. We want to hear that you're upset too. So the right way would be say something like, I am also feeling a lot of anxiety and sadness about this. And I have stayed up at nights, you know, worrying about this. And it just is making me really sad. And then you have to say, here's the path forward. So as a company, here's what we're going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again. That's what leaders have to do is say like, yes, I'm feeling these emotions, but here's what we're going to do about it. Fantastic. And I think it's just getting it right, right? Because as you said, if they go too far, you lose trust in the person or you lose a little bit of faith that you should be following this particular person. It's funny, I don't know if you have much thoughts on, um, I was just thinking when you were talking there about Elon Musk and his which feel like non-emotional comments, like, you know, everyone just needs to be back to work or, you know, they're out of here. Like, I don't know why, just as you were talking there, I hadn't in this in my questions, but I'm like, he really doesn't seem to have gotten that memo. It's a great example. Elon Musk, in the way that you hear about him most, which is through his emails or most recently his emails about get back to the office, or you hear about it in the press, you usually get like a little, you know, clip of what he's saying. But when you hear him speak for an hour, it's actually really different. And he does get emotional, almost inappropriately emotional. So when he was at the TED conference recently, he spoke with the moderator for about, you know, 45 minutes. And in the middle of it, he called out this person who was a, a, a co-founder of Tesla who was in the audience and he has had a disagreement with this person. And he went on a tangent about the fact that this person should not have gotten credit for this and like called him out in the middle of the audience. And it was extremely inappropriate. So I think, you know, listening to him for a little bit longer, you see how those emotions come out in a not productive, maybe even unconscious way. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. We're going to have to have another podcast about leaders because we seem to have very similar views. Yes, and there's the, so much to talk about. The, it's, it's weird. Okay. Now, back on track here, because I need to let Liz get back to her life in LA today and not hold her up much longer. I want to mention, in, and I have obviously mentioned your new book quite a lot throughout the interview so far. Now, I love the new book helps us understand what difficult emotions are not abnormal and that we can emerge from them with a deeper sense of meaning. Now, I thought you were very open in the book and so was Liz, right, about the fact that you'd had quite a difficult few years. You had, you know, moved cross country, you'd suffered chronic pain, you'd been quite down in yourself and Liz had similar challenges. Now, this is where you thought about a book that could help people navigate the really hard feelings. Would you mind just sharing a little bit more on that? Because I, I was fascinated by that because the previous book seemed more business focused. You brought a bit more of yourself to this. If, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So after our first book came out in 2019, we both went through really difficult periods. So I experienced burnout after the first book came out. And then, as you said, I moved across the country. I was dealing with um, some chronic health issues and I experienced deep despair. And Liz, her father-in-law was dying of cancer, having a long battle with it. And she went through some difficulties at work as well. And we realized 
so our first book was called No Hard Feelings. And we said, oh, actually, there are some really hard feelings. <laughs> and one of the things that was helpful for me during that really difficult period of despair was reading about other people going through really hard times. And I think oftentimes we're not honest about how hard those times actually are. We talk about them after and we say, you know, it's okay, we got through it. And here's the 10-step checklist in order to get through it. And <laughs> I just wanted to hear about like how hard it was for people. There's so much in just being validated for like, yes, what you're experiencing is really hard. And so Liz and I talked about this. And then we went to our publishers in January of 2020 before the pandemic started. We said, we want to write a book about difficult emotions and how people work through them. And they said, eh, that's sort of a niche audience. Like, who's going to want to read a sad book about difficult emotions? And then in June of 2020, after the pandemic had started, they came back to us and they said, actually, we'll buy that book because <laughs> COVID is happening and all everyone is feeling is difficult emotions. I think there's something in the air right now. There's a lot of books you mentioned Renee Brown. Um, Susan Cain just wrote a book about feeling melancholy. Dan Pink just wrote a book about regret. This spring, I think we have had a lot of things, whether they started before or during the pandemic, come out that are really about, hey, acknowledging life is hard and we should share some of these stories. Yeah, I, I love it. And I, I really liked that you guys were so honest in the in the book uh, about that. And it, it's for anyone that hasn't, I mean, I know in the UK, you can't get the book yet, but I'll give you the details on when you can. But the, I was in the US, so I picked up my copy in the US, but there is some really great stories in there and, and Molly and Liz are so honest in it. So it's, it's fantastic. Now, the other thing in the new book, you say that there, you know, you talk about big feelings, which you mentioned there. And again, I love that you have broken them down. You've got the big feelings of the modern world. And again, we won't get to go through these, but for anyone listening, pick up the book, you'll get to see what they are. But here they are, uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout. And I love that burnout made it in both. So uh, burnout, because it's such a hot topic. Perfectionism. I am part of the perfectionist club. And um, so that chapter was really helpful for me. Despair and regret. Now, envy, which was kind of, I think you, you use comparison as a kind of a softer word for envy, but I'll ask, uh, you can tell us a bit about that. Envy can reveal what you value if you know how to decode what it's telling you. I loved that. Would you mind sharing a little bit more on that one, which is for our listeners is one of them, which is comparison. But now I'll let uh, Molly explain more. You brought up an interesting point about whether we called it comparison or envy or jealousy. And when we did a poll of our readers, many of them didn't identify with the emotions of envy or jealousy. And I think that's because there's such stigma around that. It's like no one wants to admit that they're having envy of someone else. But when we said, do you feel like have comparison against other people? They were like, oh, yeah, every day. So that's the first thing. And comparison is something, again, we feel like we shouldn't feel. But again, we're humans. We do feel like this. It is biological. They've done a lot of studies of our close ancestors um, in monkey populations. And the monkeys, like if you give them a piece of food, they're happy. And then when you give them a piece of food and you give the monkey next to them a better piece of food, the monkey freaks out. So this is like really hardwired. And so again, we have to ask ourselves, well, why is this hardwired? It feels terrible to feel comparison. But like it, there must be a reason behind this. And it that's because it can be really motivating if we if we think about it correctly. And so we give an example of the book in the book, the author Gretchen Rubin, who's the author of The Happiness Project. Yeah, we love her, too. And she was a lawyer and she had a phenomenal law career. She was clerking for the U.S. Supreme Court and she got one of her law school's alumni magazines in the mail and she was flipping through it. And she realized that the people that she was jealous of were actually writers, like people who had left law to go become a writer, not the lawyers. And she said, oh, I think I need to quit law and go become a writer. And so that can help us figure out what it is that we want and take action on it. Yeah, I think it's a great. And after I read it in the book, I thought, you know what, I've probably done a bit of that in my own career. You know, when I worked at an investment bank, I thought, how do I get to vice president? How do I get to the next levels? And I would see, oh, 
why has she been asked to be on the People Development Committee? Hello, why am I not on the People Development Committee? And I, I think it does drive you on a little bit, right? And it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's like, oh, it's kind of like a little, I had a little, sometimes a little bit of an aha moment to go, you know what? I need to get on something like that. And actually it started from a bit of comparison, maybe envy to go, what happened? But it actually drove me on and I got to my next levels in my career because I started doing those things that I saw others do. And I'm curious because you made a career transition. So now was there anything in that that helped you make that? There was actually. I haven't been asked that question on the podcast. So I've worked in corporate for 20 years in mostly like investment banks or big financial institutions doing transformation and fixing problems and like everything from employee engagement to developing training programs. And I think what happened was I would see all these other people doing podcasts, et cetera. And I go, they're kind of very theoretical. And I think I could do that because I've actually been in the trenches and kind of know how to drive employee engagement. But over the years you go, this works, this doesn't work. And I think that's what happened. And I also saw like people, PT trainers who become these global, like millions of followers. And I was like, what are they giving people that I couldn't give someone to help them? Because work is such a big part of people's lives. So I thought, I, I got to do this. And I've always been told by friends and everything over the years, you should do something like this because you've got a good personality for this stuff. So probably the combo of all of that brought me to this. But thank you for asking the question. That's I love that. I love that. So there was some looking at other people and saying, oh, that looks fun to me. Absolutely. I looked at lots of people like, I mean, I would look at them and go, wow, it looks so fun because I actually, but as a kid, I always wanted to be a radio DJ. That was my dream wow. job. Wow. I wanted to be a radio DJ. But what happened was then I was also very ambitious and I was like, oh, I've got to go and work in London and I've got to work at the, like I worked at Goldman Sachs and I was like, and I just, and I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely loved Goldman Sachs. I loved my career there. But, you know, over the years I thought, mm, I'm not sure when I compared myself with other people, but I thought, I'm not sure I see the more senior ones as something I'm aspiring to. I feel like I want to aspire to something different. Thank you for asking the question. Now, back to you, because you're the star of this show. Um, I love a Mythbuster and you guys do this great in the new book. You say feelings can serve us. I know sometimes in the moment, having certain feelings can upset us, but I love how you think about reframing these feelings. Yeah. So I think often we think about big feelings as being bad. And often, you know, we label emotions as good or bad. And a lot of the therapists and psychologists who we spoke with doing research for the book said, that's not a helpful distinction. The distinction is, is this a emotion helpful to me in this moment or not helpful to me in this moment? And that helps us feel less stigma and shame around feeling those emotions. And oftentimes there can be a deeper need that the emotion is trying to get us to be aware of. So we just talked about with comparison, the deeper need is maybe I want to make a change. And this is the thing that's telling me to make a change. Um, same thing with regret. Regret feels terrible, but it does help us say, OK, I'm going to make a different decision in the future because I regret the decision that I just made. Anger, we talk about it in the book, and underneath anger is oftentimes fear. Like, you know, something that I really care about was violated, and I'm afraid of that being violated again or being taken away from me. So that can be helpful. Yeah, I, I, I love it. And the anger one, yeah, I, I could talk all day about the anger one because I think that was, for anyone, you have to get a look at this book because it's there's some fantastic stuff in there. I just love your practical tips within the book. It's so good. And combined with Liz's um, illustrations, it's just, it's such a friendly, easy read. I just love it. Now, another myth that you bust is we should, oh my God, this I just thought was great because how many times have we all heard this phrase said to someone, we should be strong. So the myth that you guys bust is we should be strong enough to think our way out of difficult emotions. Now, how many times have we heard just focus on the positive or cheer up? <laughs> yeah, this is really problematic. And I have been on the receiving end of this. So when I was going through despair, deep depression, people said, you know, to me, well, at least you're not feeling this or, you know, but you have it so good. Like, you know, you just wrote a book and it came out. And 
that just, you know, if the person knew how to cheer up, they would like <laughs> it's and, and I have done this to other people, too. So there I had a friend who went through a deep depression during college and I hadn't experienced anything like that yet. And I probably said something to her like, you know, why can't you just look on the bright side? Like, you know, have fun. You're, you know, you're 19. Um, <laughs> and I went back and apologized to her. And I said, you know, I, I know that I wasn't that supportive. And honestly, it was because I had no idea what you're going through. And I'm sorry that I said that. And she was very appreciative of that. The other one that I thought was interesting in the book that you, um, there was a fantastic one about uh, the teacher. She was doing her makeup. It was related to a little bit of uncertainty, I feel like the, you know, it's like burnout, uncertainty and the, a lot of research around having some rituals. And this lady found doing her makeup was a ritual. Could you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Because I thought that was a really good one and something, a foundational thing I think people should do in moments of uncertainty, challenge, etc. When everything feels like it's up in the air, it's helpful to find small ways to ground yourself. And so one of our readers said that even during the pandemic, when it didn't really matter whether she put makeup on or not, she put makeup on because it grounded her and it really let her transition into, okay, I'm going to work today. And it made her feel better about herself. And the thing about rituals is that it doesn't matter what it is that you do, and you don't even have to believe in rituals, they still work. So <laughs> pick something to do at the same time every day. It can be strange. So we we spoke with the author Cal Newport, who's the author of the book Deep Work, and he has a ritual where at the end of his workday, he says out loud to himself as he's shutting his laptop, schedule shutdown complete. And it's just a made up phrase, but it tells his brain, now you're going to stop thinking about work right now. So rituals are very powerful for us as humans. Absolutely. I love them. And like for me, I have to go to the gym. I have, you know, and I thought, I think I saw in the book something about even if it's bake a cake on a Thursday or something like that, whatever the ritual is, do it. You know, sometimes it's like just even having a long shower. You know, I do my best thinking in the shower. I'm like, I solve all the world problems in the shower. Now we're coming towards the end of the interview, Molly, and just two final questions. So this is better at work. And we want to, we always ask people um, that come on the show, what's the smallest possible change our listeners could do to have an impact and a better day at work tomorrow, maybe from an emotional standpoint? One of the things I think is a really small change, but very immediate is scheduling time within your teams to talk about emotions. Emotions are really awkward to talk about. They, you know, we we tend to avoid talking about them. And especially in a remote or hybrid environment, we miss all of the time before, after the meetings in the hallway. We're like, oh, you know, let me get your thoughts on this. Like, you know, was that weird? You know, I'm sorry I said that. And we we miss those times. So within a project setting, you could do this at the beginning, middle and end of a project, or you could do it on a quarterly basis. But it's scheduling time to have a team check-in to talk about team dynamics, work preferences, and you can share, you know, I'm an under a motor, I'm an over a motor, you can share all of the unique things about you. And then in the middle of the project, checking in and saying, how are we doing? Are there any elephants in the room that we want to bring up? How are people feeling about the team dynamics, about the content of the work that we're doing? And by putting time on the calendar, it gives us permission and we're all doing it together. I share this example from my personal life. You know, in in your personal life, it's also hard to talk about emotions. And my husband and I, it sounds very corny, but we started doing this thing where every Sunday we have like a check-in about the relationship. And we say, you know, what's one thing that's going well in the relationship and what's one thing that we want to change? And what that does is like things come up over the course of the week as they do in every relationship. And it's like, well, I know on Sunday I'm going to have time to bring that up. And so I'm not trying to wait for the perfect time, you know, and it's just there. I think you're going to have a lot of listeners stealing that one. That's a new one for me. So that one is, uh, we, we'll have to put that one in the show notes. That's a great tip. Now, our final question is, can you recall the best advice you ever received that has made you better at work? As I mentioned, I'm an under a motor. And one of the pieces of feedback that I got was that I, when I'm meeting people, I tend to be a little bit more removed or private. And I'm a really warm person once you get to know me. 
But I have had to really think about how I can show up when I'm meeting new teams, meeting new clients, working with new people to shift how I'm showing up. So I have to bring more energy into those meetings. So that's unique to me. And that's been really helpful. But I think everyone can apply that, you know, given your own emotional expression style, what advice have people given to you about that? And and how can you take that forward? Wow, that's really good. Well, I can say you've been incredibly warm and lots of fun <laughs> on you. this. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they're thinking, but you know, it's, I, I get that though. I think it's a great piece of advice for all of us to think about what we bring. And, you know, I, and I think I saw even on your, on your website, you have a, a template you can download. So to get to know you as a manager. Now, I've always been a big believer that whenever I've taken on a new team, very similar, tell them a little bit about my style. What's my triggers? What's my, you know, all of that kind of stuff, which just helps get people into a better position really quickly. But thank you for sharing that. That was amazing. And thank you overall. I'm really delighted that you were able to join us at Better at Work. This is so much fun. And honestly, I can't believe we talked about so many things off of my script uh, of questions, but uh, it was so fun. Now, for anyone that wants to hear more and learn more about uh, Molly and Liz, go to lizandmolly.com. There you will see details on their amazing books. And the new book, Big Feelings, is out on the 7th of July here in the UK. Having read it, I can highly recommend it. I've actually, I love it. It's really, really great book, guys. And also on the website, you'll find the amazing assessments. Actually, uh, Molly mentioned some of those assessments as we went through. And here's the other thing, guys. As you know, our podcast is based on research and we like to get the best behavioral scientists, psychologists, etc. These assessments are actually based on research, which I think will be really, really useful. And they can help you learn about your emotional tendencies. And finally, also do check out their Instagram page, which I bloody love. You will not regret it. The illustrations are amazing visual exploration of how to embrace emotions. Molly, thank you for having thank me. You this was so, a delightful conversation. It was so much fun. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day there. And hopefully we get to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Oh my God, Annette, did you love Molly? Kahal, I love Molly so much in there. We've always been told, don't bring our emotions to work. She's saying, actually, we should bring them to work. I've definitely been told no emotions at work. Made me reflect on how in the past, I've been really quite proud to say in my career, I've only cried at work three times. And I know I've given people advice about keeping a glass dome over your psyche and your soul at work and those the insights about actually those emotions are not abnormal that's what mm-hmm. we bring to work and treating them as data yes they can conserve us and help us that was a jolt for me yeah i love the bit about treating them as data i i totally agree with you Annette. i was shocked on the envy one being envious as data what did you think of being envious at work I was so happy to hear Molly referring to Gretchen Rubin. You know, I love Gretchen oh, yes. Rubin and I listen to Gretchen Rubin and her sister Liz Craft every week on the Happier podcast. And so I'd heard Gretchen talk about that, about paying attention to those feelings of envy and when you feel yourself comparing yourself to someone else's life or career, work and feeling a little twinge about, oh, that's nice for them. I would like that. That's a clue, a hint about there's something in that. What do you like about that work, that career, that life, that person, and then use that to think about, okay, well, what's my plan? What do I need to change or investigate or study so that I can you know, move towards some of those elements that are giving me those feelings of wanting to compare myself? Yeah, I thought that was great because it was interesting how she said that when they studied some of this with, uh, when they were researching for the book that people didn't identify with the word envy, but they didn't mind comparison. Like, I'm not a jealous person. I'm not yeah, envious, exactly. but actually those, like comparison, the word is 
you know, more of a healthy label. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. But I do think people, it's like, yeah, I think people need to realize that sometimes that it's fine to be a little envious of other people because it does drive you on. I think I even mentioned it in the podcast when I worked in London at the investment bank. I would go, well, why are they getting, I'm envious of them being on this committee and that committee because that seems to be you know, things I'm interested in. And actually it did drive me on a little bit to go, well, I should just do something about it. Like, can't I ask my boss? Can't I find out why, how can I get on that committee? How can I do what they're doing? And the insight from the research with chimpanzees that when one chimpanzee gets seven strawberries and I've only got six and like, I'm not happy. <laughs> yeah. That comparison is, it's innate, even though we, you know, like to think we're sophisticated and evolved. No, it's part of being a primate. And Carl, I think the, the other one that was really powerful for me, no one is going to draw your boundaries for you. Yeah, you're the only one who can really do it. The other thing I was just going to say that I took away from her was she talked a little bit about burnout. She said, figure out if you are overexerted, disengaged or feeling ineffective. I love those as three little kind of when you're feeling like you're really exhausted, thinking to yourself, am I overextended? Am I disengaged or am I feeling ineffective? I think that's a really useful framework for for understanding what's really going on. I think overall, Annette, she brought a lot, Molly. Like, you know, my notes, I had loads of pages of notes. Did you want to sum up your final key takeaways? The big one for me was no one is going to draw your lines. What are those lines? And being ambitious for your life and being less passionate about your job, more passionate about your life, linking to that, you need to draw your lines. And the other one was paying attention to your feelings, making a note of them, using them as data, going deeper to understand what those emotions are telling you. And for me, shift your thinking from being proud of not crying at work and actually I want to feel those feelings more. And if I'm going to cry, don't fight it. And then use that as an understanding to unpack and, and learn and make, continue to make those refinements. Some really great takeaways there in it. And now it's time for our listener's question. This is a question in from Daniel. My colleagues are smart and kind. I find my work challenging and I'm learning heaps, but I think the brand is dull and likely to fail in its target market. And I love this close out from Daniel. And as The Clash said, should I stay or should I go? I struggled with this question a little bit because I thought, okay, he likes the job. He's finding it interesting. He likes his colleagues. He's seems inspired by the work, but he's not inspired by the brand. And I was going to circle of control. I was like, is this like it's outside of his control or could he bring it into his control? And I was going, well, the only way he could bring it into control is to go to the CEO and say, I think this brand is dull and boring and I am leaving unless we can make it a little bit less dull. So I really struggled. I really struggled with this question. I don't normally do I, Annette, but this one I was really struggling with. I haven't got the answers, but I've got some thoughts of some more work for Daniel to do maybe. So the insight from Molly, there's something here that Daniel is feeling and he needs Mm. to pay attention to that that feeling. So work through why he thinks the brand is dull and why he thinks the organization will fail in its target market. And that might be also something he can talk with some trusted colleagues about. And then to from those insights to then determine, which only he will know from within his role, can he control or influence any of that and be part of the turnaround? So what can he practically, realistically do to contribute? Is there something there? And then if not, that's where the watch points and cautions are that in a role, even if you have great teammates and the content of that your work is interesting to you, if the company is an inspiring Daniel, then his purpose and meaning are at risk over time. And we know that that can be a cause of burnout 
my view is that we should always all be networking. So rather than should I stay or should I go, that part of your career and where to next is ongoing about what the options are, Kahal. Your advice is great that he needs to keep up his network, get out there. I do think a lot of companies are now focused on purpose. They understand that purpose is becoming a more, uh, I suppose, something that employees are are more keen to understand the purpose of a company, which I think is the essence of the problem here for Daniel. You know, he doesn't believe in the brand. He doesn't think it's going to be successful. He's not happy with the purpose. But I think that that is something that as he looks for the next role, he'll probably have to think about. If you don't believe in the overall brand, I do think it's a big block should I stay or should I go? It's say, we think you should take a look around, take the data from those emotions and see what else might be out there. And that finding a brand that lights you up and also having that awareness of it, a successful succeeding organization is important to you. But at the same time, having those great colleagues and interesting work, yes, that's hard to find as well. So I would finish by just saying, I think it's always hard to find a place that kind of hits all of your criteria, you know, because great colleagues, great brand. That is, you know, I mean, it does happen for some people, but it is tough to find. And I think, mm-hmm. as you said, Annette, I think our advice is um, start exploring because if it's mm-hmm. if it's not lighting you up, then, as you said, it could lead to burnout in the future and you could just get totally disengaged. But thank you, Daniel. We hope we answer that question for you. And Annette, thank you for joining me on another Let's Take This Offline. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, looking forward to having you back again soon. Thanks, Carl. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.